language is so people would think more about what they wanted. And so we're not using kind of these established labels of monogamy, polyamory, relationship anarchy, things like that. But if those are floating around in your head, which of course, you know, the idea of monogamy is floating around in everybody's head if they grew up in this culture at all, then one-to-one bonding will clearly trigger that. So it's okay if you have those associations, but we're not trying to say monogamy and one-to-one bonding are the same thing because there's all these cultural, there's all this baggage around what does monogamy mean? And you might be strongly emotionally bonded to someone and be kind of emotionally monogamous in that way but be sexually open to other people. So you, you might be a one-to-one bonder, but a one-to-many sexer. Welcome to the Multi-Amory Podcast. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. We believe in looking to the future of relationships, not maintaining the status quo of the past. So whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, swinging, casually dating, or if you just do relationships differently, we see you and we're here for you. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're excited to have Dr. Eli Sheff back on the show to talk about her research on polyamorous families and how to determine if polyamory or some variation of it might be a good fit for you. We're going to be talking about some exciting new research-based treats for all of you out there, including a new research-backed online quiz to help determine your comfort level with non-monogamy or monogamy, as well as a new super short fact-filled book, Children in Polyamorous Families, that just was released recently. When I was putting this intro together, I did not even include a bio because I'm just like, yeah, everyone knows who Dr. Eli Sheff is. But for those of you who don't, Dr. Elizabeth, aka Eli Sheff, is a researcher, expert witness, coach, speaker, and educational consultant with a PhD in sociology and certification as a sexuality educator from the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. Dr. Sheff specializes in gender and sexual minority families, consensual non-monogamy, and kink BDSM. She is the foremost academic expert on polyamorous families with children, and her 25-year polyamorous family study is the only longitudinal study of polyamorous families with children to date. So Eli, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be back chatting with you delightful folks. <laughs> thank you. Now, I, I will be surprised. You know, you still hold this title of having the only longitudinal study. Is there anyone else vying for the title? Are you having to be king of the mountain and protect that? Like, are there any up and comers <laughs> who are also entering the, the field? You're pushing of them off the mountain. <laughs> no, right? get out of here. No. <laughs> Not that I know of. Longitudinal research is really hard, and I kind of started doing it on accident, really. I mean, a lot of... I, it just kind of happened to me. Um, although, I have to say, there's this really interesting Holly Babes research in Canada about um, people... They they studied people who were pregnant and having children in polyamorous families. Right, oh, I wow. remember. Like, Holly, like 
poly babies, not yes. just like hot, no. hot poly yeah. babes. Not, not okay, the hot wow. babes, but babes like B A B E S, but meaning. Babies, babies born into polyamorous families. So that's a oh, it's an acronym. It's Bearing and Birth Experiences Study. Oh, you found that's it. Cute. Wow. Vinegar's very good at doing this in the middle of an episode. She's like, let me look that up. <laughs> wow. I'm going to tell you things. So I don't think it's longitudinal. Dedeker, does it say there? I don't uh, they, they say qualitative. Okay. So yeah. it's qualitative can be longitudinal. My qualitative yeah, research is longitudinal, just, but most people are like, this is a one strike. I think this thing. is just, it's the just one so much easier to plan. It seems like if it was longitudinal, they would want to brag about that, but right. well, maybe yeah. it will turn in. It'll be accidentally longitudinal as well. <laughs> I be. sure hope so. Yeah. Follow those kids and yeah. see how they're doing. I think it's, it's a great cool. idea. Yeah. Yeah. How fascinating. We, we now for a couple of years have been planning our own research study as well that we plan to be longitudinal, but the whole thing kind of got thrown off by COVID. So that's kind of yes, been delayed like another year. But um, but yeah, we're excited to do that. Not specifically studying polyamorous families, although that, that will be included in it. So hopefully we can join you. What are you going to research? I'm interested. Uh, so, I mean, it's probably like spoilers or something. I probably can't tell too much. Uh, but basically looking at things like resilience factors and kind of looking mm. longitudinally at how those, how certain traits or relationship styles or types of relationships contribute to their longevity over time, as well as looking at things like not just how long do they last, but how healthy are they? You know, how are the feelings about them as they ended? You know, kind of that that whole thing, as well as just trying to get a sense of kind of who out there is polyamorous. You know, the the never ending question we all want answered. Right. The the label usage. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We are not the the academic geniuses behind the study. We're pairing. You <laughs> no. know, we are joining forces with Dr. Ryan Witherspoon. Wonderful. To, um, He's know, fantastic. Someone who actually knows what they're doing. <laughs> <Yeah>. So <laughs> thank goodness. Yeah. But again, that's been kind of put on the back burner because of right because of COVID. Yeah. We're doing kind of a similar thing. The um, principal investigator is Dr. Justin Mogilski. And we've just finished our phase one and are ready to, to release an online survey mm. as that we've just finished up. So I think definitely these two things should cross-pollinate. Yeah. For, oh, absolutely. Oh, they should. Yeah. They should. So we should sure. put Justin and Ryan together. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Okay. Well, on, on a brain date. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> a brain brain date. That's true. We'll set him up on a blind brain date. Justin and Ryan. <laughs> and they can develop a brain man. Yes. <laughs> a brain man as well. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> I love it. That's good. So <laughs> this is your first, or no, sorry, this is your third time. I was going to say this is your first time. It definitely is. And this is your third time on the show. And the first, just wrote this down, the first time was episode 45 from November 2015. Which wow. is incredible. Because <laughs> that was yeah, like in our first year or a little yeah, bit after the, our first year. The day we're recording this is the day that our 300th episode releases. That's exciting. So, Congratulations, yeah, you three, on thank all of you. your thank success you, but thank and you your for hard being work. there at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. Thank oh, you my so pleasure. Much. And then we had you on, let's see, in 2018 for episode 171. And that was, did we record that when we were all in Tucson together? I'm trying no, to remember. Was... Or we we just talked about right. we're going to be doing this. Yeah. 
at some no, we point. We just kicked back and had cocktails together. I do remember Tucson. that. That was, that was fun. Delightful. Planting was very this. Fun. Yes. yes. Yeah. So we have Ooh. you on basically every two and a half years or so. So you're <laughs> a mainstay. For us. Well, then I'll be back in two and a half years from exactly. Minnesota too. Yep. And, and maybe then we can talk about our cross-pollinated study that has oh, happened that's, inevitably. I love that idea. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. Okay, we'll set that intention for the future. It'll be lovely. Okay. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So for both of those episodes, you know, we had you on to talk about the subject matter that's in your wheelhouse, which is, you know, your findings on polyamorous families and kids raised in polyamorous families and stuff like that. And we probably will talk about that a little bit more today, but you have this new project called The Bonding Project. What is it? Which is super exciting. Yes. Can you tell us about that, please? Oh, yes. I'm really excited about it. It's this collaboration um, with some other colleagues. We've developed this app for phones, a test you can take. It takes, I'm going to estimate about 10 minutes. I know y'all took it. Did it take you about 10-ish minutes? Super, yeah, yeah 10-ish 10 minutes, maybe, maybe 15 10 if you to deliberate. 15. If you really okay, sit there if you think, think yeah. hard. And it is kind of a thoughtful <laughs> test. It asks you some questions you might not have necessarily thought of before. Um, it sorts people at this stage of the test, we're sorting people into kind of four primary categories. People who prefer to bond one-to-one, one-to-many, many-to-many, or solo. And, um, you know, these initial categories, obviously we are going to, as time goes on and we develop more tests, we're going to become more fine-toothed in that. Like one-to-many, for instance, there's a whole bunch of different ways one person can have relationships with many people. So developing tests within that larger category is coming up for us next. But for now, um, I think people in consensually non-monogamous relationships already could certainly find this useful to think about it, especially if you haven't thought about solo before. Hmm. But I think the people who might really have their mind blown by it are people in monogamous relationships who've never really thought about anything else and are like, oh, wow, you could do that. And that sounds kind of good to me, actually. And holy cow, I look at how I tested on this. Who knew? Um. Yeah, we're really excited about the test. It's been released and we just got all sorts of interesting results from our first, I think we hit a benchmark of like, I don't know, I would have to, I don't do the numbers. I do the questions (laughs) and the the background, you know, like in order to um, develop the test, I read um, tons of literature on satisfaction, relationship satisfaction. Mostly in consensually non-monogamous relationships, actually, because um, research on consensual non-monogamy often compares to monogamous relationships. So I got some of that there already. And Mm -hmm. it tends to look around at the different types of consensual non-monogamy within that. Mm -hmm. So I pulled out all these factors that contribute to satisfaction in these relationships and then we wrote questions around them Hmm. so that's one Hmm. of the big differences in this test between like this and another really well-known test the myers-briggs well that's actually a useful and interesting test there's no science behind it somebody just kind of made it up 
Yeah, isn't oh, that interesting? Gosh, it's been a lie this whole time. <laughs> I feel so cheated. I, mean, I don't know that it's a lie. It never though. says that it's based on scientific that's, anything. That's true. Right? It's just kind of like. Have fun. Take this test. I just kind of right? projected. I was like, these people sound like they know what they're talking about. I'll take a test. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, I mean, it wouldn't have stuck around this long as if it were completely useless. You know, True. it must resonate with people on some level. But um, this test, we we felt like grounding it in research and kind of pairing with other academicians for instance, Justin Mogilski is an <laughs> academic partner with us, and he looked through this and would use some of the data we generate to understand his sample. And so we're hoping not only to help people figure out what kind of relationship style and bonding style works best for them, but also on the back end to have lots of research data from a wide diversity of people that to help us better understand what are people choosing hmm. and, you know, what's generating that, how many people would prefer one to many or many to many, you know, that'd be interesting. And how many people are really, really want one to one and that's their primary thing. And they really want to stick with that. Hmm. Yeah. And that's, I think that's something worth mentioning to our listeners who are hearing this and wondering about the the test is that uh that it's not like you know it's not like a cosmo quiz that's like which one of these animals are you and that's your relationship style but it's more of those four categories you mentioned it gives you a rating of you seem to be strong like have a strong affinity for one-to-one and maybe you also have a strong affinity for many-to-many or for solo or whatever that it's not like you end up in one of the four, but it's kind of, you seem like you might be strong in this one or maybe curious about this one or probably not so much this one. And that's, I think that's worth pointing out to people that I think also in a way kind of makes it more like the Myers-Briggs where there's four categories and you're on a scale in each one. But uh, yeah, agree to disagree type <laughs> scale. Right, yeah. right. Thank you so much for saying that, Jace. Um, actually, we rate, in each of those different four relationship categories, we rate people as either comfortable, curious, cautious, or challenged. Okay. Mm. That's, so, that's interesting because I didn't get the cautious or challenged, or challenged. On, on any of them. You I don't didn't get any of them. Oh, well, did you? Now that is I? really interesting. Or no, maybe no, I did. I, I think <laughs> we're going to, in the bonus episode, we're going to talk more about our specific. Yeah results and stuff like that. But yeah, yeah, I guess I wanted to point out, you know, I think that it's clear for anyone who's been engaged or in touch with the non-monogamous community for some time, there's always people who are just like, I don't know if this is right for me. It seems like part of this could be appealing, but I also could see myself being okay with monogamy. Like, I don't know, like, like, how do I determine that? And, you know, there are some people who have put out some resources, you know, some questions to ask yourself, some scenarios to think about. You know, I think that Kathy Labriola in one of her workbooks, you know, she also did kind of a little quiz that was kind of just seeing where on the scale between non-monogamy and mo- monogamy maybe you fit or are you more of like a relationship uh, chameleon or things like that. Um, but what I do appreciate is that with the results of the bonding project, it's less of this, here's where you fall on a scale. 
And it is almost a little bit more like a grid. And I'm curious, you know, I think that a lot of people would think that it is this spectrum between non-monogamy and monogamy, but I'm curious to hear a little bit more um, explanation of these kind of four different categories of the one-to-one, one-to-many, many-to-many, and solo, because even when I first took the quiz, I was like, I guess I can kind of guess what these might mean, but uh, I can't make any assumptions. So can you like lay that out for our listeners a little bit? Absolutely. Um, and I think one of the reasons we used this somewhat vague but also specialized language is so people would think more about what they wanted. And so we're not using kind of these established labels of monogamy, polyamory, relationship anarchy, things like that. But if those are floating around in your head, which of course, you know, monogam- the idea of monogamy is floating around in everybody's head, if they right. grew up in this culture at all, mm-hmm. um, then one-to-one bonding will clearly trigger that. So it's okay if you have those associations, but we're not trying to say monogamy and one-to-one bonding are the same thing. Because there's all these cultural, there's all this baggage around what does monogamy mean? And you might be strongly emotionally bonded to someone and be kind of emotionally monogamous in that way, but be sexually open to other people. So you you might be a one-to-one bonder, but a one-to-many sexer. Hmm. you know um, so you don't have the you don't have the sexer project yet <laughs> right yes yes but so that person you know would probably fall at the intersection of one to one and one to many and right. you know probably want to talk to their partner or partners about hey look i'm kind of straddling these two categories here how do how does this work for you what kind of bonder are you um, so one-to-one is wanting one other person and really being like, this is your home base. You know, you really kind of want to spend most of your time with that person. Um, and you can spend time with other people, but you prefer for that person to be with you there, you know, even when you're hanging out with other people. And sometimes you don't want to hang out with other people. You just want to be with that person in your kind of loving nest is Mm. one-to-one. So without the judgment of, oh, and that, you know, that some kind of judgment sometimes comes from polyamorous communities of monogamy is kind of about ownership or something. You know, that's a lot of cultural, maybe it is for some people, but for some other people, it's really, they bond to one other person and that's their primary, you know, like, that's where their heart is. Mm-hmm. One to many want, can bond with multiple people. Um, and some of, sometimes those bonds are different. Sometimes they're, those people are connected to, sometimes not. Uh, one to many is probably the broadest category. It basically covers if one person has the ability and or desire to be emotionally and or romantically or sexually or whatever involved with more than one person at the same time, they can bond to more than one. Many to many, 
um, if you're familiar with the idea of polyfidelity, yes. where there's mm. a group that it's the, the, not the individuals within the group or the dyadic relationships in the group, but it's the group itself that you want to be part of that polycule or mm. that collective. And that's some of our early research or our early findings are showing that a lot of people are either cautious or curious about that, but hardly anyone is like, yeah, I'm mostly huh. many to many, you know, like many to many. I think it's a, it's a concept a lot of people don't have and it's perhaps hard to maintain. It's more complicated than one to many. One to many is you're kind of doing your own thing and you have multiple partners. Many to many is you value the group. Right. And some people love that and that's really important. And other people are like, oh no, get that off of me. That's claustrophobic. <laughs> that's way too much. And some of those solo people either don't want a primary relationship, don't want to have sex, don't want to have a romantic relationship have multiple partners and they don't really want to, you know, elevate them on different wavelengths hmm. or they sometimes have a, their most significant relationship is with someone who's not a romantic partner. So a single parent who prioritizes their children or um, someone taking care of an elder parent or someone who's ill or just a best friend you know, right. is your most stable person and relation like romance comes second to that. So we're finding a lot of interest in solo bonding and especially mm. among young people, the 18 mm. to 28, I think range mm. had like, I think almost half of them identifying as solo bonders. And these are early days still, we're just getting numbers in. Right. But um, it'll be interesting to see how that grows over time as the as the reach of the study gets larger as well. And to kind of see some different demographic information. That's really interesting. I'm really. Yeah, I'm just curious about the research that you did and kind of how you developed all of this. Can you go into that a little bit? And like, is it was there preemptive research and now also research that's happening on the back end or what how did that all occur well first i read other people's research people who's published research like for instance dr terry conley c-o-n-l-e-y her research was key in this she's done a lot of work on relationship satisfaction in polyamorous and consensually non-monogamous relationships so she and dr amy moore's and Dr. Heath Scheckinger and um, Ryan Witherspoon, who we mentioned <laughs> right. already. Yep. Um, you know, all sorts of people have looked at this, like what makes these relationships, if people are satisfied in them, what kinds of characteristics in, you know, include that. So, for instance, one of them, one of these characteristics is novelty seeking. Mm. That mm. if people not only can kind of tolerate, but even actively celebrate new things, 
they tend to be more comfortable in a polyamorous relationship, whereas some people, novelty feels threatening. Like they much prefer to have familiarity and comfort and routine is what works in their life. And like surprises are not fun. Whereas mm-hmm. for if you're a novelty seeking person, you're like, yeah, surprise me. Uh-huh. I love surprises, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. So things like that, identifying those elements. And so first we wrote, oh my goodness, I think the first test I wrote had like a hundred questions or something. Totally oh, wow. yeah. It was huge. Yeah. And so the four of us on the team we would take it and we would be like, okay, this question, we can't even understand what it means now after we've written it. We don't know that, that ha- I don't know what that means. Let's just get rid of that one. These three questions basically all ask the same thing. So we'll choose the best one of those. You know, for months and months, we added and subtracted and changed until we had this kind of prototype that we tried on, um, all sorts of people we tried on my elder child and their polycule <laughs> and um, got some great feedback from them. We tried on our friends. We tried on, you know, just kind of people in our immediate social circle and got feedback on that. And then we really took that feedback to heart and revamped the whole thing and cut nice. it way down. Mm. Yeah, I'm um, trying to. Is it a 50 question? No, it's not oh, even that not long. Even. Is it? It's like 20, right? It's it's, bre- it's freakishly brief for what it does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, know, I was gonna say from a researcher perspective, I imagine that would be the most challenging part is getting oh, it to actually be and brief. Slicing, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And for every question to really mean something, you know, we got rid of all the fluff questions that were mm-hmm. kind of interesting to ask, but didn't really directly contribute to deciding you know which of these like what's your comfort level yeah um and thank goodness for our quantitative brainiacs on the team because on the back end they've built all of this stuff i don't understand that takes those (laughs) answers and does something magic to them and they come out in understandable formats that actually (laughs) from the feedback we've gotten so far are pretty accurate. And I'd be Mm. interested to hear what you all think of your feedback when they're, when the time comes. Yeah. We have also not shared our results with each other very much yet. Uh So in the bonus, that'll be fun for us to also talk to each other about our results (laughs) as well as talking to you about it. So, so yeah, that'll be fun. Yeah. Can you give our listeners just a little sampling of you know, what kind of questions are they going to be facing? You know, like, are you going to sit me down and make me detail my entire relationship history and my failed attempts at monogamy and stuff like that? You know, like, <laughs> like how are you, you know, once you distill to all your like golden, golden essential questions, what was, what was left over? Um, well, there's a range of ways to answer each question from Oh, yeah, totally comfortable with that to kind of comfortable, but have some reservations to don't really have a lot either way to not super comfortable, but not horribly uncomfortable to like really uncomfortable with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so because we realized when we were kind of pilot testing it that just having an agree or disagree 
you know, like, are you comfortable sharing your partner with other partners is one of the questions Mm -hmm. we ask. Um, You know, I think for a lot of people, the answer is that depends. Yeah. What is, what, what's my relationship with my partner? Who, who am I sharing this person with? Am I there? Do I know about it? Have we talked about it beforehand? Do I like this person? Am I actively involved? Do I not want to be involved? You know, like Mm. it depends on so much. So if you think about kind of overall, are you comfortable sharing your partner with other partners? For some people who are deeply, deeply polyamorous, and that's an orientation for them, they're probably going to say yes, full on yes. And, you know, I'm not, no hesitation about that. For someone who is deeply, deeply monogamous, they're probably going to say, no, it doesn't depend. There's no question in my mind. Absolutely not. But for the other people, when they think about overarchingly, I lean towards being accepting with some reservations. Or I lean towards probably not with some exceptions. Um, yeah, that, it, it helps to to have that more nuance, more so than just the the classic, totally disagree, kind of disagree, neutral, agree. You know that it helps to have it written out in that way because if there's a, definitely anything that I've learned in like meeting so many different non monogamous people is there's a lot of flavors and colors yes. of nuance at the rainbow of how how people go about this and what people are actually comfortable with. Absolutely. At first, actually, in the development of the test. We had an it depends mm. thing that people could click on, click on, and it would be a drop down menu. And that drop down menu got so crazy long <laughs> and it still yeah. didn't cover everything. Yeah, we were like, can, we yeah. can't cover everything that it depends. We've got to come up with yeah. a right. like, yes, no, it depends. You know, we were like, so you're scrolling and scrolling and scrolling <laughs> still. It's, oh, it would depend on that, I see. You know, we're like, we just can't figure everything. Right. It depends out. Yeah. Right. And Jason Dedeker, I'm not sure how you two took the test, but I took it very much in the context of the relationship that I'm currently in. Like, with that in mind, as opposed to just, like, if I was 100% single or whatever in... And so that, I think, colored my results for sure, whereas I'm not sure how that might be different for someone who was, you know, practicing solo polyamory, for instance, or relationship anarchist, or hierarchical polyamory, or totally monogamous, stuff like that. So that's Or someone who's single and is like, exactly. I don't yeah. know, do yeah. I want a relationship? If I do, what kind might I want? yeah. 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 So that's yeah. kind of interesting. You know, There's Emily, I'd there. be really interested if you would take it again and think not of your current relationship, sure. but like yeah. relationships in general and mm-hmm. compare those two and see if they're different at all would be super interesting. Yeah. I do wonder <laughs> how that would be. And, and we will absolutely talk about it more in the bonus episode but yeah but yeah, maybe th- we need to make, make some time for you to really quickly retake oh, that, emily just to <laughs> well yeah I mean, that, that's super fascinating it's science emily it's science no i know it's yeah there's... how the results change depending on what your mindset is that's true yeah i t- took it in bed yesterday and i was like <laughs> uh i think i'm not quite sure what i should be doing here so yeah just kind of <laughs> 
<laughs> trying to figure um, that out. I, I appreciated you pointed out that um, on the back end, as you're seeing people responding, you know, this kind of interesting phenomenon of like a lot of people who are maybe curious or cautious about many to many, not a lot of people who are super, super gung ho. And I think that makes sense when I think about Americans specifically, like I, I think we're pretty well socialized to be suspicious of anything relatively collectivist. And I think that makes sense that that's how mm. individuals that come out in the wash. Damn it. We are individuals. Um, I'm wondering other than that, any other surprising things that you found so far? Boy, you know, I just got these graphics that I, can I share my screen? Can we look at them and talk about them? Oh, okay. So wow. Eli is sharing her screen with us and we're looking at these results and there's some really amazing colorful pie charts so we have one pie chart that's bonders by orientation and it's broken down into like asexual bisexual bisexual and queer gay heterosexual and queer um and then the other one was what bonders by like relationship orientation yeah, as well let's scooch over <laughs> oh, i went down oh wow a little. bonders there by age wow bonders okay. by orientation so this is just looks of, like of we're everyone heavy on who's... the heterosexuals. Yeah, but ironically, heavy. only forty three percent heterosexual. Whereas in average society, it's at least ninety percent heterosexual. So even That's though we've got almost right. half hetero. Yeah. It's, yeah, that is what they tell us. That, yeah, um, that's what they say, but maybe yeah, people are being so, yeah, more honest so 43% on this. So 43% heterosexual, and then everyone else falls under like lesbian, pansexual, queer, panromantic, asexual, bisexual, gay, all those things. Wow, fascinating. Let's see. Okay, bonders by age. Um, so it looks like we have the no majority. No one above 60. <laughs> no one above 60 yet. And that okay, might have yes. been a function of... Um, who we knew, you know, and who we I asked see, to in the pilot test. Round. Yeah, that makes yes. sense. Yes, right. Yeah. Um, and also because people over sixty are less likely, I think, to want to use an app specifically mm. for relationships. Like this is more for the millennials and the Zoomers, I would say, <laughs> than the <laughs> sure, boomers. Yeah. Right. Right. Aren't we all sense. Zoomers now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm Gen X, actually. Yeah. The lost true. generation wow. of we're just a nothing. Well, but now we're all honorary Zoomers. Like, right. Yes. We yeah. All day on Everyone's an honorary yeah. Zoomer these days. It's yeah. true. Yeah. It's a good point. So do you so, have wow. any data wow, breakdown by by bonding style? Let's so far. See. This is okay, so by heterosexuality, oh, is, yeah. by age. Oh, wow. Still age. No, I see. Yeah. So oh, this, I see. This okay. breaks down very back. granular here, where it's, yeah. it's not only showing the amount of people who are cautious, challenged, curious, uh, or whatever many, about many. the different styles, but also broken down by their orientation and things like that. That's fascinating. That's really cool. Yeah, are you, um, I mean, I feel super lucky that we're getting access to this, like, secret behind the scenes charts <laughs> and data. <laughs> um, are you intending to, at some point, release any of this data for public consumption for all of us curious cats out there? You know, definitely. Um, we That's one of the reasons that we're already um, partnering with other academicians, because I do not do statistics 
at all. I can't deal with statistics. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so having other people take these and really, you know, seriously analyze them and say, what does this mean? I'm great on the on the incoming end of how do we construct this and making sure that it's accurately measuring what we're trying to measure, but then deciding what those statistical results mean. So we're pairing up with other people who can do that for us. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And what's kind of your vision for the future of where this test may go or how what it may develop into? Um, Well, for one thing, we're going to move into not only being able to compare. Right now, I think we can compare two people's results. But our next phase would be being able to compare the results of a polycule, like taking Mm -hmm. five people's results and saying, you know, this is where you're going to be strong. This is where you have some differing bonding styles that you might have some issues here. Um, So for that, we would want to develop a range of other tests that can differentiate. Like, for instance, among solo bonding, there are so many different ways to do that and figuring out, you know, people who are curious or comfortable with solo bonding, what exactly the different ways they could do that. And then if they're part of a polycule, How does that interact if somebody else is more emphasizing like many-to-many bonding? Mm -hmm. That polycule, you might say, okay, we're going to have some issues around the collective versus the group. Hmm. Right. It's not that the solo How do we balance it? Yeah. 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 No, that makes so much sense. And I could see that being so helpful because, you know, you were mentioning that I think a lot of the real world instances that we see of people doing this many to many bonding where the emphasis is on the collective, it's on the cue and how it functions as a group that often in real life, it does become difficult for people to maintain sometimes. And sometimes they're, they can be not very stable. And the way that I've always thought about it is that it's like whenever if you have like a polycule of, let's say, six, and we're all trying to make this collective and like cohabit and like make a little commune, there's there's always going to be someone in that group who's like the least excited about the collective than anybody else. No. That's how I always thought about it. Um, but I think this makes sense that if you could identify obviously not from a place of like judgment or condemnation or someone being bad or someone being good, but just this like, oh, this person just really thrives better with solo bonding rather than many to many. Or this person is them and get them out of it. (laughs) We identify No, No, but maybe we identify, okay, on the big piece of property that we're buying to create a commune, we'll make sure that you get your own little house. Yeah, maybe it's that. I mean, maybe that's a silly example, or maybe that's a that's an on the nose example. I don't know. It kind of depends on people's situations, but I think that really makes sense as far as like practical applications of instead of it being this assumption of like, okay, everyone's in the collective and everyone has to be equally excited about it, or else this is not going to work. That we can really identify these individual variations and then hopefully build something out of that that's more flexible and kind of more speaks to everybody's strengths and, and areas of most comfort. Especially if you do it early in the relationship to help figure out before you've made these hard and fast agreements, and then it's like, oh, you're in trouble, you're breaking the agreement. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes people don't know what they want, or they haven't even thought it through, really, to even think, what are my options? And hopefully, that's one of the things that this test can help is people start to consider, oh, I didn't even know 
you could do it that way. And now that you ask me that question, I, wow, I, I'm surprised to think that I'm, I might really consider that. And so at least help people start conversations about what kind of boundaries and what kind of bonding do they want without kind of just stumbling blindly forward in a way and kind of assuming everybody either has the same bonding style or one is better and really we should make sure everybody jumps onto that one. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, right. One of the big motivations for this actually was ha- was also developing a tool that counselors and therapists could use to help their clients. Um, we're not calling it a diagnostic tool specifically because there's that's a whole different threshold of research kind of, and we're not trying to diagnose, right. you know, anything. But it's certainly the way that therapists consider, you know, recommend people take the Myers-Briggs to figure themselves out. Mm. This same kind of thing that people could decide what kind of bonding style they want and help talk to their partner. And if you can compare results, see where, again, no one being at fault, but just differing personality styles or expectations or bonding styles could expose, you know, like, oh, here's here's a difference here. How do we handle that? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm so excited to just see what results come out of this, like what all of you on the back end see after this has been out there for months, years, you know, even longer. Like, it's going to be super fascinating. And those pie charts become more definitive. Yeah. <laughs> all of those many, many pie charts. Yeah. yeah. And I think that'd be very exciting, too, that as those results come in, if you're able to share some of those things on the bonding project website so that so that people can kind of see that as it comes in because that's definitely a lot of really interesting very cool data that i know a lot of our listeners will be excited to mm-hmm. they're like i want to know i want to see it so. yeah yeah and <laughs> yeah, kind of so, see okay, where so they you... sit in the bigger picture and <laughs> right, everything right. that's cool that's a yeah yeah so all y'all listening out there are probably like, I want to take this too. I want to find out. So if you just go to bondingproject.com, there's not only the test itself, but also ways to sign up for their newsletter and FAQ, all kinds of other information so that you can kind of keep up to date with what is happening with the bonding project. So again, just go to bondingproject.com. It'll work in your regular browser, on your mobile browser, wherever. And yeah, we would definitely be really curious to hear from all y'all what kind of results you got. So next, we want to talk about the the new book, Children in Polyamorous Families. Uh, but before we get to that, we're going to take a quick break to talk about how you can support this show, help keep these coming to everyone out there for free. And we will see you after that. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For a long time now, we've been fans of AdamandEve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection. And now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also 
have a promo code that will work on adammail.com and evestoys.com, which are their site specifically for LGBTQ audiences. And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store and free discreet shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love adamandeve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com and select any one item. It can be, you know, an adventurous new toy or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. So just enter offer code MULTI at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's MULTI, M-U-L-T-I at adamandeve.com, adammail.com or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping code M-U-L-T-I. So we're going to start talking about this new book, Children in Polyamorous Families. And I want to start by saying that I think the last time we had you on the show, we may, or actually it might have been after that, but we talked about your book, When Someone You Love is Polyamorous, that is a similar kind of short summary of key pieces of information, answers to a lot of those common questions from people who are either brand new to the concept of polyamory or, you know, when someone you love is polyamorous, like your your son or daughter or your uncle or whoever comes out to you as being polyamorous, that the book is sort of a resource that instead of having to ask them all those questions, or, you know, maybe your, your uncle, it's like, here, actually just read this book before you ask me the questions, because then you'll at least <laughs> have a foundation, that this book is... And that book talks a little bit about children, but this one is kind of the version of that that's specifically about families and children. Just kind of brief overview of what the research shows, what the facts are, what the myths are, things like that. And I, and I, I love that we have another book like this. I think that's incredibly helpful. So is that what what led to this getting created and what's that been like? <laughs> I really appreciate you characterizing it that way, Jace. That's exactly what I meant it to be. Great. Um, I would say that when I'm speaking on polyamory, I get a lot of the same questions about kids. And so I kind of took note of those and answered them all in short book format. So if people are trying to explain to their mother-in-law or the school counselor or their lawyer or something, Um, And I've been working on the longer book, the much more academic version Mm -hmm. for a long time now, and I'm still working (laughs) on it. Hold on, though, because you you published The Polyamorous Next Door a few years ago. You're working on another academic longer book version as well with with updated findings or yes the follow-up to that so the polyamorous next door was on both the adults and the kids and i'm breaking up the follow-up into the um academic book growing up in polyamorous families will be Mm -hmm. on the kids and that's still coming it's a longer book um it's much more academic and um 
I am trying hard to diversify my sample. I'm going back into another round of interviews, trying to find people of color who've grown up in um, non-monogamous households, any kind Mm -hmm. of BIPOC folks who want to talk to me about it. And while they wouldn't have been in the original sample, at least having a more diverse idea of different families i'm trying so that's kind of stalled that book out a little bit um trying to diversify that Mm -hmm. and then the book after that would be the persistent polyamorists aging in long-term polyamorous relationships i like that so the, the persistent yeah the persistent polyamorous i'm just like I'm yeah we are stubborn aren't we <laughs> <laughs> well and it's the people who yeah they keep doing it they're yeah. like they're you know maybe they started in for some of these folks started in their teens or 20s mm-hmm. and we're talking like you know, early in the seventies, in the sixties, some of these folks, Mm. and they're still polyamorous and they've had, you know, they're dealing with aging Mm. issues. And how is that in a long-term polyamorous setting? First of all, how do you maintain a long-term relationship? And second of all, how does it deal with aging and disability and, you know, grandchildren, stuff like that? Right. There's definitely a, a gap. I think there's a gap in the, I don't want to say necessarily in the market, but it's kind of like, there's almost like this this gap in like the publicly available like information and resources regarding that especially from a research background as well yeah well i'm excited to read those books so (laughs) (laughs) but but right now we're talking about this book which is children's book that's right that's right (laughs) and so this this book is I, i was actually surprised at first by how short it was but then when i realized it's like that's actually perfect because it's that book for like you said, the school counselor or your mother-in-law or someone who has some concerns and that it it can kind of uh, add a little bit of credence to it, I think, having it come from a book and not just, oh, let me tell you what I think about these things. And so mm-hmm. I think that's a huge benefit and I think will be really useful to people in those sorts of specific use cases, especially of just like, I want to get some information to someone. I don't want to ask them to read the polyamorists next door and commit to reading, you know, several hundred pages of a book. Uh, but I do want them to get that information. And so this is, I think this is super cool. So of the stuff that's in it, uh, they kind of cover some, some major categories and one that, that jumped out to me because we saw you speak about this, uh, in Arizona a couple years ago, which is the age dependent experiences of children. And I was just curious if you could give our listeners sort of the, the brief rundown of, of that, because I think that's just such an interesting part of the research that I hadn't really heard other people talk about. Absolutely. So small children are not that aware of the broader world. They don't understand sex and they take their family for granted. So mm-hmm. little kids like under five often don't understand what polyamory means they don't know that they're in a polyamorous family they just take their family for granted that's the way family is um once they start going to elementary school they start realizing oh other families are different and it's so funny that multiple families polyamorous families have had the experience of 
their child coming home from a play date with another family and with this big news of they only have one parent or they only have two parents. Like, can you believe that? That sounds so hard. How do they even do that? That poor kid, you know? And so for the children, it doesn't translate as a deficit of, oh my God, we're so weird. We have all these extra people, not a deficit on their part, but more a deficit on the peers part Mm. that they don't get as much attention. The kind of, Mm. oh, we're weird feeling doesn't start to leak in until the kid is a tween and the tween is like nine to 11 or so in there. And then they're becoming more aware of differences in other people's families. They're starting to, you know, they're not like fully pubescent yet, but they're coming on towards puberty. So they're starting to become, be not such a little kid anymore. And they're just connecting things. They're understanding things in a different way. So that by the time they hit their teens and they're in puberty, they're like, oh, you mean that kind of friend. You know, they're, <laughs> they're totally zoning in on their family is different from other people's families. You know, this relationship that they had seemed like who cares? You know, so mom kisses this person, whatever, you know, they hit 13 and they're like, you're kissing. Oh my God. You know, like gross. <laughs> Parents are gross. Sex is gross. Parents sex is the worst, you know? Uh-huh. Um, and then by the time they're older teens, they're not as concerned about their family. They're moving away. You know, they're much more concerned about what they're doing and Mm -hmm. who their friends are and what's happening in their life and much less like obsessing about what their parents are doing. They don't care. And then by the time they're young adults, um, it makes them kind of a rock star to have come from a a (laughs) non-monogamous family. Like if you, you know, if they're, if it's relevant to the conversation and then they bring it up, oh yeah, I grew up in a polyamorous family. Their friends are like, wow, that's yeah. so cool. Do tell. <laughs> like, what's that like? You know? Right. So it's just because developmentally humans are incredibly different at those early stages. Like there's a huge difference between a four-year-old and a nine-year-old, an mm. enormous difference. Yeah. Um, and their understanding of family life in general. So it makes just a lot of sense that they would understand polyamory differently as well. I finally had a kind of an in-person experience of this with my niece and nephew for the first time <laughs> who in the past couple of years, both have entered that tween stage. And of course, when they were much younger, um, you know, I would bring multiple partners around them basically ever since I was out, like to my sister's family, you know, I would, bring multiple partners around to the kids. And this last summer, um, when Jason and I were hanging out with them, it was the first time that like they connected the dots ever. And I was so like, I was so surprised. I mean, hearing this now, I'm like, okay, that makes sense from a developmental perspective that they just didn't have the interest or motivation to connect the dots. But it was literally the first time that they were both were suddenly like, wait, do you have two boyfriends? Yeah. You have two boyfriends. Why do you have two boyfriends? <laughs> like, yep. it, this is not the first time this has happened. I was just like, yeah, this has been going on for years, but it was like the first time that they were suddenly like, oh, oh, you, oh, oh, our auntie is different in this way and we're curious about it. And it wasn't a bad experience necessarily, but it was just kind of funny that I was like, wow, it took you this, this many years, <laughs> to, I guess, to get to that point. Well, small children 
they're much more concerned like is jace fun to play with will he bring us ice cream you know they don't care yeah. is jace having sex with auntie dedeker they don't they don't even know what sex no. is you know like yeah. is jace a source of legos that's right. much more important for little kids mm-hmm. yeah they've mostly been obsessed with jace being a source of like playing video games together yeah. you yeah. know like yeah. that's been the most important part <laughs> so i'm definitely curious to see how that conversation is going to evolve with them as they get older because i've kind of been leaving it up to their mom of like i mean i'll be honest with you but i'm mostly going to leave it up to your mom to handle like the hard questions you know if she wants and so yeah i don't know i'll be curious to see as they get older and kind of go through these different developmental stages how that's going to go just throw the podcast at them oh i'm not ready for that yet that's a little too much that's a little too much information about auntie to throw them quite yet the rest of the world gets Quite here. Yet. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. this is a much later chapter, but I think that probably it's like a good one, especially if people out there are really worried about what polyamory may do to a kid, if that's like what they have in their head. So you have a big cha- or you have a chapter on fear of damage to children. So can you talk about that a little bit? I think a lot of people just kind of off the cuff assume that something's weird with polyamory, something's wrong with it, it must be damaging to the children without really any basis in fact, yeah. but just a knee-jerk reaction of, oh, this can't be good for kids. And that doesn't appear to be the case in these families. And even in some of the families where there was emotional pain, there were painful divorces, even in those families, the kids overall feel like they learned a lot about communication and emotional resilience and the ability to, you know, kind of fledge themselves, leave home and reestablish networks of emotional intimacy wherever they go. That's a really important life skill that they learn from polyamorous relationships. Hmm. So I would say that polyamorous families don't have any disadvantages that other families don't experience. You know, their polyamorous families do have disadvantages, absolutely. But divorced families have partners that leave. Families that, you know, widowed families have partners that leave. Gay and lesbian families face stigma. Large families face household crowding. You know, um, anything you can think of that goes wrong in a polyamorous family also goes wrong in other families. They're family problems. And it turns out that when you have multiple adults with more resources to deal with these problems that actually goes a long way towards ameliorating the negative effects of these common family problems. Like the blow is a lot lighter because it's distributed among more parents so they can get more sleep. So the kids get better care, things like that. So when there is a death in the family, for instance, there's more people to provide the support And it's not, I'm not saying it's not a blow to lose someone, you know, an important family member, you still feel it. 
but especially like if it was one spouse and you have three other spice left, mm-hmm. you're not as lonely. Or one parent and you have multiple parents other left, you're not as destitute emotionally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just to give our listeners a little bit of a rundown, you know, this this really great condensed book, uh, you know, covers not only the stuff we've been talking about here, but also talking about the advantages, the disadvantages, strategies. You really clearly lay out, like, here are some of the common, like, coping strategies that polyamorous families take to be able to just, you know, live as a non-monogamous family in a very monogamous world. Um, we get a lot of people who reach out to us occasionally, you know, parents specifically asking for specific resources because it's not a topic we cover a lot on this show because none of us are parents. And, you know, we all feel like we're often out of our depth. Um, but if you're listening to this, um, I highly recommend starting with Eli Chef's this short version of the book, you know, if you just have questions, if you're thinking about opening up your relationship and you're a parent, or if you're already in a non-monogamous relationship and have questions, this seems like a great place to start. And then if you want more information, you know, you can always go on to reading The Polyamorous Next Door and things like that, as well as it being a great resource to give to someone in your life who does have a lot of questions and you don't have the time to answer all those questions because you're trying to raise a kid. Um, So... (laughs) Eli, we would love to hear from you. Where is it specifically that people can go to find more of you and more of your work? You can check out my website is a good place for that. ElizabethChef.com, E-L-I-S-A-B-E-T-H-S-H-E-F-F.com. You can also find me on Psychology Today. My blogs there are free. Um, I blog under The Polyamorous Next Door there we've used a couple i know that i personally have used a couple in our episodes <laughs> a couple of <laughs> your blogs yeah, definitely. yeah they've awesome. been very helpful so thank you glad yeah. to hear that and then also to remind our listeners if you want to check out the bonding project quiz you can just go to bondingproject.com no the just bondingproject.com you can take the quiz there and you can share your results with other people In our bonus episode, which we're going to go do right now, we are going to talk about our own results that we got on that quiz and discuss those with Dr. Chef a little bit. Uh, We would also love to hear from you on our Instagram story. We want to know your bonding style you came up with on this quiz. So if you want to share that online, you can do that on our Instagram. If you also just want to discuss this in general, the best place to share your thoughts with other listeners is on this episode's discussion thread in our private Facebook group or Discord chat. You can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can also email us at info at multiamory.com. Multiamory is created and produced by Dedeker Winston, Emily Matlack, and me, Jace Lindgren. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balvanera. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our production assistants are Rachel Shenowark and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com. <laughs>